If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. We're going to read together this morning the first 11 verses. So here is the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he was entering, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So I don't tend to listen to Christian radio that often, but a few months back I heard a song called 1,000 Names. It's written by a man named Sean Curran and performed by a, an artist I like named Phil Wickham. And the song has this kind of recurring reprise that is sung to Jesus. And here are the words. I know you by a thousand names, and you deserve every single one. You've given me a million ways to be amazed at what you've done, and I'm lost in wonder at all you do. I reference this song because in our text today, we get to know Jesus by a new name. It's a name by which I don't imagine most of us know him, the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's my prayer today is that we journey into God's word together as we explore and we investigate these narratives so that not only would you learn something new about Jesus, but that you might encounter and know Jesus. Know him in a fresh and new way. And as we dive into this text, I, I encourage you to stay alert, stay engaged, because as you heard, the thing that most immediately jumps out to me, the thing I first recognize is, is my cultural distance from the, the world of this text. There are settings and activities and spiritual convictions. There's references, modes of thinking that I don't totally understand or, or resonate with. But don't worry. This is certainly God's word for us, even if it was not originally written to us. And so it's reasonable for us to expect that it'll take a little bit of work to cross into another time and another culture. 
But it's worth it because the living Christ we find in these pages is 100% for us and sent to us. So let's dive in and kind of just walk through these stories. So it's on the Sabbath. It's on a Saturday. It's on the traditional Jewish day of rest that Jesus is with his disciples and he's walking through one of the many agricultural plots in this village that he's visiting. And we see his disciples plucking and eating heads of grain. They're, they're rubbing them in their hands to get that kind of coarse outer husk off so they, they can pop it in their mouths and take a little nibble. And we have these Pharisees who are the country's kind of respected and devout Uh, We might call them religious influencers. These are men of repute. And they're saying, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, like I said, this isn't a, a scene that's familiar to our modern experience, so let's make sure to get our bearings. First question, is Jesus and his disciples, are they stealing? Are they engaged in what is the ancient equivalent of uh, when you're walking down the bulk aisle in the grocery store? You grab a little handful of yogurt-covered raisins and pop them into your mouth. Is, is that what's going on here? Or is this, you know, some mild theft? Are, are the good and religious men of this village calling out this minor moral lapse and inviting them to a more holistic, ethical faithfulness? Well, to that first question, no. They're not actually stealing. Uh, in the Torah, in God's instruction for his people, he establishes this general principle that people who are hungry have a right to food. It says in Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you're going through your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. If you're passing through a fellow Israelite's field or orchard and you're in need of food, feel free to take what's required to fill your belly. But don't exploit your neighbor, is what he's saying. The law is saying. You can't carry away a bunch of their produce. You can't employ it to your own ends. But if you're hungry, have some food. So what it's at issue is not what Jesus and his disciples are doing, but when they did it. This is the Sabbath. This is the day when faithful Jews honored God by not working. And that's what they're accusing Jesus and his apprentices of. He's saying, these men and women who are with you, they are doing work. They're harvesting on the day of rest. Which is a little nitpicking. Because, you know, harvesting. Well, they said that you're reaping. They're plucking little handfuls of grain. And you're threshing. Well, they're rubbing it between their hands doesn't it strike, strike me as this real egregious moral compromise. But the, the spiritual leaders of this community, they warn that they're drifting into perilous territory. And on the one hand, I hear what they're saying. They're saying this isn't human tradition. This is the fourth commandment. This is one of the big ten. God had told Moses, our forefather, and we were commanded, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner, that's the immigrant who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So how does one keep the Sabbath holy? By not working. And what qualifies, qualifies as work? Well, the Pharisees will say, that's complex. But it's better to be safe than sorry. In their own words, they said that they have erected a fence around the law because they wanted to make sure that God's people didn't accidentally stumble into law-breaking. So they created these the system of precautions to keep that from happening. It's kind of like if you're in your front yard and you tell your kids, hey, don't play in the street. Well, can they play on the sidewalk? Yeah, that's not the street, but, but you could be playing hopscotch on the sidewalk and, and stumble and, and go into the street and get hit by a car. So they're like, well, how about we put a picket fence on this side of the sidewalk, keep them in the yard, there's no chance of stumbling. And that's kind of what they're trying to say. And yet the rabbis confess that sometimes they went a little too far. There's one Jewish Mishnah devoted to Sabbath keeping that admits this. The rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and the rules are many. So they call out Jesus and his disciples and his initial response strikes me as non-defensive. He seems willing to concede maybe a, a technical violation, but he, he responds by citing an even greater exception to the rule. He responds by this story from the life of David. If you don't know David, he's one of the nation of Israel's greatest kings. He's Jesus' direct ancestor. He's also the one, who threw, the one through whom the Messiah, humanity's long-awaited Savior, was promised. And there's a moment where David is fleeing for his life. He's on this urgent mission with him and some of his brothers in arms, and they're hungry. And they, they stumble quietly into the tabernacle, which is the house of God. And they say, do you have anything for us to eat? And the priest says, the only thing we have is this very holy, sacred bread that we bake and we place in the Lord's presence as an offering of gratitude. And then when we take it away, it's only allowed for the priests to eat that consecrated bread. But the priest says, I'll give it to you. But are you ceremonially clean? Are you, are you ready to prepare this? And he says, yes, my, my men are ceremonial clean. And, and we have this holy mission. They are, they are trying to preserve the life of the Lord's anointed. So not only are they re religiously clean, but they're made clean by the mission that God has them on. So the priest gives them the bread. Why does Jesus share this little tidbit of history. We're saying, no, David didn't do anything wrong. There's, 
He was in this extreme situation. There was this urgency to his mission. And as God's anointed king, he has God-given authority to override that legal restriction and do it on behalf of his followers. And it seems that what Jesus is saying is if the law could be set aside for David and his men in their urgent situation, how much more so for Jesus and his disciples in a situation of greater spiritual urgency, which is the necessity of proclaiming the reign of God. And most of the rabbis would agree that that these Sabbath laws could be suspended in matters of life or death. But not everyone agreed. Some thought you had to stick to the letter all the way to the end because that's how we proved our faithfulness to God. But I find Jesus' next response to be even more surprising. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We get this new name for Jesus. And it's a different point of emphasis than the other Gospels. In the other Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, man was created for the Sabbath and the Sabbath for man. He seems to be emphasizing that the Sabbath, this day of rest, was supposed to be a gift and a blessing to humanity. Don't transform it into a burden into a death sentence. Hearken to the spirit, not the letter of that law. But here in Luke, Jesus has a completely different emphasis. He doesn't focus in on this day of rest, the Sabbath. He focuses in on himself. And he says, the son of man. That's me. The son of man is the Lord. That's him, not me. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He said, I need you to know me by a new name. Well, how many of you used the word Sabbath this week? Exactly. So I think to understand this name, we might need to do a little excavating. We might need to rewind the tape. What is the Sabbath? What's its history? What was its purpose? Well, this word Sabbath, the Hebrew word Shabbat, uh, means at its root to take a seat to sit still, to dwell, to cease and rest. I am the Lord of taking a seat, lording of of sitting still. I'm the Lord of dwelling. I'm the Lord of ceasing and resting. We don't quite get clarity yet. But if you go into the Hebrew scriptures, we learn a lot about Sabbath. Here's a quote from one of my favorite uh, books on Scripture. It's called Scripture and the Authority of God. And in the back, they have this case study on Sabbath. And there's this great little summary statement that N.T. Wright has. In the Old Testament, Sabbath command is solid, fierce, and mandatory. But here's the important part. It's rooted in the two greatest narratives that shaped Israel, creation and exodus. He says, Sabbath is appropriate because God rested on the seventh day after completing his creative work, and it is commanded because God brought Israel out of Egypt. So what is that trying to say? Well, it's trying to say that this notion of Sabbath, of God's people taking a day of rest every week where they stopped working. First, it's connected to God's project of 
creation and communion with his creatures. In Genesis 1, we've got God kind of inaugurating the cosmos. He's creating the world. He's setting up realms. and He's installing his, his representatives in these realms. He creates the seas and there's, populates it with fish. He creates the air and he, he populates it with birds. He creates the earth and he populates it with animals. And he, he places humanity there to be his special representatives He creates the heavens and he puts in the sun, moon, and stars. He's setting up his universe. He's putting into motion. He's teaching us what it's for and what our purposes are. And an ancient Near Eastern person reading the creation account, they're going to start to hear what sounds like the building of a temple. But God is not building a temple Made out of stone, he's building a universe. And then when you finish a temple, there's usually six stages of construction to a temple. And then what the last thing is, is the God comes to rest, to dwell in that temple so that he might be accessible to those who are worshiping him. And what we get is this picture of God creating the universe in these six days. And then at the last part, he rests. He comes and he descends and he dwells within this world that he's made. He shabbats. He sits down. He dwells. There's this sense of deep enjoyment and celebration, this reveling in the goodness of heaven and earth. But there's also the sense that God is available and accessible to these creatures that he has just made. He's taking a seat in their midst and he's saying, my presence rests with you. Know me. Let us know one another. There's also something here about He stops from his work for a day. But that implies that the work continues. That creation itself contains within it a project. And while God invites humanity to rest with him, he will also invite them to join him in his work. So there's something in Sabbath about this God's Access, God's work among us, God's availability to us. It's built in to that rhythm. But it's not just creation that there's a connection for God's people. There's also that story of the Exodus, and the Sabbath comes up again there. Somehow, Sabbath is connected with God's promise for liberation and justice. When God frees his people from slavery in Egypt, he commands them to observe a day of rest. And we read this in Deuteronomy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So it's not only tied with God's work of creation and his desire to commune with his people and do work with his people. It's also tied to his heart to free slaves, to make things right, to liberate. And Sabbath is for the least of these in Israelite society as much as it is for the Israelites themselves. Notice how God emphasizes that Sabbath provides a break for children who worked a lot in the ancient world, for servants, for immigrants, even for the animals. In Leviticus 25, God even institutes a Sabbath rest for the land. He says for six years, cultivate it. Work the land, but on the seventh year, let the land itself rest and lie fallow. It's that same rhythm, but on a more, I guess, geologically appropriate time. But are you picking up on the theme? Sabbath is a gift and a down payment for a groaning creation that yearns for this broken world to be made right that hungers for renewal. And God further emphasizes this because he starts to create what um, biblical scholars call Sabbath cycles in Israelite society. There's a weekly Sabbath. There's a Sabbath for the land. But he also says there's a Sabbath for society. So every seven sevens, there's this something called a jubilee which is a Sabbath for the society itself. And and a trumpet blasts and debts are forgiven. Slaves go free and all lands revert to their ancestral owners. For God, this rhythm of Sabbath is constantly pointing forward to what he wants to do in and among his creation. And you might remember talk of this when we study the book of Daniel together because he talks about these Sabbath cycles in the history of God's people. But the prophet looks ahead and he says, you know what? There's not only going to be this regular jubilee, this regular small scale experience of rest and liberation and renewal. There's going to be a great jubilee, a great Sabbath. And he says this in Daniel 9, it will be for, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place where I can dwell and be with my people again. There is going to be a massive Sabbath, a great jubilee, a making new and right of all things. And you got to keep practicing this small, regular rhythm because it's going to prepare you for the bigger work that I want to do among you. So this whole notion of Sabbath is tied up in ideas about God communing with humanity. It's tied up in this overarching project that God has to liberate all that is tired and vulnerable and held in bondage. It's tied up with God's creative work to put all reality into a proper and life-giving order. But there's also something super practical about the fact that God asked his people to stop working one day a week, every week. 
Because it's this exercise about in humility and in trust. You see, overwork speaks to our misplaced confidence in our own efforts to secure our future. And when we just work 24-7, what we're actually saying is that I trust the grit and the grind inside of me more than I trust God's goodness or God's ability to sustain and provide. Just continuing to plow forward reflects our unwillingness to acknowledge our limitations and to release ourselves into God's care. And embracing Sabbath allows us to experience God's work in our weakness. And so it's with all that context that Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And this is how he puts it in the Gospel of Matthew. He fleshes out this new name. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. little clarity about take my yoke upon you. That is an agricultural image, but it's not that he's putting something on us that's a burden. The picture is of two oxen yoked together. And he's saying, I'm in this yoke. Get next to me and let me pull with you. Let me be your strength. Let me teach you how to trust and rest in God even as you labor. He says, I want you to know me as the Lord of rest and Sabbath. Jesus and Luke has been talking about new wine requires a fresh wineskin. And apparently this offer of gospel rest is part of that new wine, which is why I think it dives instantly into that second Sabbath controversy where he's healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And Jesus says, new wine requires a fresh wineskin. You've got to be open and receptive. And it seems like there are those in his community that aren't teachable, that aren't willing to receive. That's why they start to build this case against him. They're trying to come up with formal charges, but he's trying to reveal what God is doing among them, and what God's heart is. He says, God's salvation has arrived and it will impact you. It will impact your ability to rest. And then he initiates. He finds that man with the withered hand and he says, let me show you what rest looks like. And he heals it. And he says, don't forget what the purpose of the Sabbath was. It was a gift and a signpost to God's ultimate salvation. And now that salvation is here. Receive it. Enter into God's rest. Jesus says, I am what the Sabbath 
promised. I'm the bringer of God's rest. I'm the one who will make God's very presence available to you. I'm here to dwell with you in your midst. Let me teach you. Let me be strength for you. Let me be God's gift and sufficiency to you. As I wrestled with this text this week, I really struggled. Not just because there's cultural distance, but because I identify a bit with the Pharisees, right? They're trying to to say it's about trusting God, but the way we trust God is we work really hard and we prove ourselves faithful. And then he hopefully, graciously welcomes us into his rest. It's about crossing every T and dotting every I. And if we we just make the best effort, if if we labor, if we... Try. Maybe, maybe we'll find what we're looking for. And Jesus seems to say, he just flips the table and he says, no, the rest is here. I am here. Quit striving. And receive. And I've struggled because I'm realizing, wow, I know Jesus is rest, but do I know him as Lord of the Sabbath? And so I, I just found some reflections on this passage from some wise Bible teachers. And I just want us to kind of hear them and process them as we try to meet Jesus in this new way by this new name. So here's one. This comes from a man named David Garland. Moderns have tended to lose the sense of the Sabbath as a gift of God. Many measure success by the extent or pace of our own striving. It is said of someone with pride, that person works 24-7. It reflects our attempt to keep an anxious grip on the world and to prevent people from experiencing a time to rejoice, refocus, and give gratitude. It also forecloses on the opportunity for God to do God's work in them. Does anyone identify with that phrase, attempt to keep an anxious grip on the world? Are any of you like that parent that says, I don't want my kid to get hit by a car, so the fence is going to be back here. I'm going to structure, I'm going to hold it, I'm going to make everything work. Because I don't know if I'm safe. I don't know if we can find rest. I don't know if I'm worthy of it. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Sit down. Cease from striving. Cease from your labors. Know me and my power. Here's another one. This is from a guy named Richard Lowry. Sabbath consciousness is grounded in the fundamental conviction that God is willing and able to provide enough for humans to survive and thrive. 
It's based on the belief that life and well-being are ultimately gifts from God, not products of human effort. Though these gifts are channeled through human labor, Sabbath consciousness, being conscious of God's gift of rest, thus is grounded in humility, recognizing and respecting the limits of being human. And then I love this last part. In a nutshell, Sabbath consciousness is grateful confidence in the abundant life given by God. And don't miss this part. If you're gratefully confident in the abundant life that God has for you, we also practice a humble self-restraint as the appropriate response to God who unselfishly sustains all creation. Some of us know our Heavenly Father is good and is, loves us and that he's got us, that he's welcoming us into a, his rest. But we don't have that humble, humble self-restraint. We still anxiously try hard. And I don't think we're not supposed to try hard, but we are angsty about it still. There's something about where our, our belief and our heart aren't talking to each other. We're not really entering into rest. So a question for us is this. What does it mean to live in a gospel Sabbath? What does it mean to know Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath? And one final quote. This is from the book I started sharing with you last week. We take time to rest. This is what gospel, a life of gospel, Sabbath of knowing Jesus as our giver of rest. We take time in our lives to rest, play, create, and restore beauty in ways that reflect God to ourselves and to others. We can live with the confidence that God is running the world so we don't have to. We can be settled at heart knowing that Jesus has done all the work necessary to make us acceptable to God. So we no longer need to try to earn his acceptance through our work. And then this is the telling part. We can work with all our hearts unto the Lord out of gratitude and actually be at rest while we are working. And then he ends this passage with a confession. He says, I have discovered, and maybe this is me too, I have discovered that my lack of faith in God's power to save, sustain, and secure me is displayed in my lack of ability to truly rest, create, and play. You see, many of us, we can't rest and recreate but we should be the most joyfully rested people on earth because we know Jesus, who's the Lord of the Sabbath. He invites us to enter into and experience his rest. He says, I love you and I'm here and I've made a way. And your efforts are, are misguided. You don't know how to rest. He says, my rest liberates, it breaks chains, and it brings life. My rest is new wine, it is the overflowing of joy. 
But no, we overwork because we fear. And we overwork because we distrust God. We yearn for rest. The Pharisees are yearning for rest, but our rest does harm and destroys. Even when we try to. Jesus says, no, come to the Lord of the Sabbath. Enter his rest. The disciples have entered his rest, even though they don't know where their next meal is coming. And then they're laboring with him. This man with an infirmity, a withered hand, enters his rest by coming to the Lord and saying, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm I'm sin sick. I'm no longer going to try to fix myself. I'm coming to you. And how do they enter his rest? They're with him. They're trusting in God's provision. They're caught up in his work. I don't want us to miss this. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. If that's you this morning, Jesus is talking to you. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Join up with me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. I am not going to drive you. In fact, I'm going to make a way that even as you labor, you're at peace. You're resting that it's fullness of joy. You will find rest for your souls. I have come that they might have life, find life and have it abundantly. I've come for rest, for freedom, for liberation. We should be the least angsty people on this planet because we know the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm an angsty person. (laughs) How have I missed this? May we enter into his rest and trust that his grace is enough. Amen? Amen.